0: Today on the Wall Street Coach podcast with Kim and Curtin. The most important thing that myths teach us is to go beyond the limits of our possibility.
1: We each are our own hero. In other words, we're not separate from the characters we see
0: in our movies and in our novels. They are us. It's one journey.
1: How do we take the challenges that come our way and see those as the birth process of us becoming heroic? The one thing that keeps people small is their fears, or as Campbell says, it's their dragons. It's a beast. It's a monster. So the death isn't always a literal death, sometimes it's a metaphoric death, sometimes it's a depth to a belief of yourself or a belief of how you're gonna be viewed. It's going from an unsatisfying life to a satisfying life by pushing through the scariest things you can imagine. It was like the heavens opened and the angels sang, and I felt I was struck with lightning.
0: I think people wake up to the fact that they're the hero of their own life when they get tired of being the victim of it.
1: Here, I'm being given another opportunity to be the hero of my own story. The point is, ladies and gentlemen,
0: that greed is
1: good. Don't confuse greed with desire. You don't have to exploit other people to get what you want. Having desire is good. Let me tell you
0: something. There is no nobility in poverty
1: money has become this powerful symbol for wealth so that you can have all the money in the world and if you don't have peace of mind you are not going to be a happy camper i
0: don't lie to myself and i don't hold on to a loser the moment it doesn't feel right i let it go
1: away from it. Oh, it's so easy to lie to ourselves whether it's holding on to a losing position in a trade or in our life. Our ego does not like to be wrong, but that lie will cost us each and every time.
0: The Wall Street Coach podcast with Kim and Curtin.
1: Welcome back to episode 5 practice four of the Wall Street Coach podcast. Uh, our podcast is still a baby, uh, and we're very excited to be here. Glenn Ostlin is my sidekick, uh, also known Robin to my Batman, I think we said. Yeah, that
0: uh, sidekick, not psychic. <laughs> Too bad. I'm I'm might, I might I might be. I might I might pretend to be one a little, times, but no, I'm more of a sidekick than a psychic, but I could do either one. I sidekick.
1: Close. If you were a sidekick who was a sidekick, that would be even more exciting. Sidekick,
0: sidekick, there's a comic book out there just waiting to be written
1: there is i think there is actually (laughs) maybe you're the one who has to write it right um uh this even though this is our fifth podcast the first uh six episodes we're doing actually focus on what i call my five practices they're five practices uh that i strive to practice in my own journey and they are five practices that i I usually advocate to my clients when I do my coaching with them, and they also happen to be uh, in common with the 50 that I interviewed for my book. I called them the Wall Street 50, men and women who succeeded in the world of finance with integrity, with a sense of consciousness, and in the end, I discovered that they all had these five practices in common. Uh, either one or more of them. And while they may not have called the practice what I call it, uh, I saw them living the essence of it. And uh, I'm excited to talk about today's uh, practice because this practice probably is one of the first practices I got exposed to in my early 20s. Undoubtedly, transformed the way I approached my spirituality, it undoubtedly transformed the way I interpreted uh, other worlds religions. And uh, I think Joe Campbell, the gentleman who taught me about the hero's journey, Uh, even had something to do with me living now here in Hawaii, which is where he lived at the end of his life. Uh, So I'm excited to talk about the hero's journey today, which is practice uh, four. And uh, I call it in my book, actually embracing your hero's journey, your own inner hero. Uh, And this is all informed by Joe Campbell. So welcome. Uh, very excited about this podcast today. It might go a little over because I'm going to have a lot to say, and uh, I'm excited. How about you, Glenn? Do you like this topic?
0: Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm interested. You know, I, I have my academic training in folklore and mythology, but but you know, we didn't we didn't get into Joe Campbell. Uh, you know, Joe pe- people in the academic world, at least when I was going through, were a little snooty about joseph campbell really uh, yeah, That's so yeah interesting.
1: So why why were they snooty about him
0: i really can't speak to anyone's oh. reasons for being snooty but <laughs> you know, yeah i am I, not quite sure but um the the hero's journey as far as like having tail types and archetypes and uh you know i I'm, I'm quite familiar with with that the the morphology of a hero tale that sort of thing so i yeah i'm looking forward to hearing uh really what the appeal was and is to you and yeah. why this is one of your four uh, yeah. practices so yeah i'm i'm looking forward to it
1: okay awesome i'm so glad one thought i had was that we open up the conversation by giving you a nugget of what and what the hero's journey is and to do that i want to f- let you guys listen and or watch a trailer from a movie uh, that a good friend of mine uh, made about seven years, maybe eight years ago. The movie is called Finding Joe and uh, Patrick. And I met because I heard about his movie coming to New York. I was so elated that I asked him I wrote him an email and I said, how can I help you? How can I get this movie out there? And I think I promoted it all over New York City, posters and whatnot, and I think I brought 15 or 19 people to the premiere in New York because I was so enrolled in having this uh, be seen as, by as many people as possible. Uh, so we'll we'll let you listen to that clip uh, first, and then I'm gonna dive into you know, how I came to know him and the magic of Joe Campbell.
0: The most important thing that myths teach us is to go beyond the limits of our possibility. Joseph Campbell was one of the leading mythology experts of all time. He diagrammed
1: all of our stories. He find this one story within all the stories that we can relate to no matter where you come from. And he called it the hero's
0: journey. All the heroes, all the villains, they're all in there, because they're all in here. This is where they come from. In other words, we're not separate from the characters we see in our movies and in our novels. They are us. It's one journey. If this path of the hero's journey is fairly simple, why then is it that everybody isn't living it?
1: It's very difficult for a person with the media, with advertising. There's no creativity.
0: You end up on that treadmill, and you can't get off. We are each our own greatest inhibitors. The one thing that keeps people small is their fears, or as Campbell says, it's their dragons. It's a beast. It's a monster. I'll never forget seeing the ramp, and this wave of fear just crashed over me.
1: It's going from an unsatisfying life to a satisfying life by pushing through the scariest things you can imagine.
0: I think people wake up to the fact that they're the hero of their own life when they get tired of being the victim of This idea that our greatest selves are still hidden and that what we do with our lives is what makes us heroes. Once I saw what was possible with a skateboard in your hand, I had to keep going. I mean, I just wanted to fly. This is it. This is what happens when we follow our bliss. Magical things happen that we couldn't have imagined. Do something that gives you that moment. And if you can do that, then you can achieve the impossible. The great obstacle for most of us is ourselves. If we can overcome that basic fear, in Campbell's terms, we can all be heroes.
1: It just gives me chills every time I watch it, and I have seen it so many times. It's ridiculous. How about you? What do you think of the trailer?
0: I love it. It is a beautiful metaphor.
1: Yes. Yes. And that, and that is what he feels, you know, uh, what, what happened for him is that he couldn't get a job in the Depression, and if we go even further back, uh, after he graduated school, but if we go even further back, he was born in New York City and he uh, was very taken at the Metropolitan Museum, uh, Museum of Natural History rather, uh, f- with the Native American uh, totem poles and the entire exhibit that featured them. And meanwhile, in school, as a young boy, all his friends wanted to be cowboys. But after his experience there, you know, he wanted to be an Indian when they played the game outside in the neighborhood. And it was because he was so fascinated with the stories and the, you know, all the symbolism that he saw in this Native American culture exhibit and so ultimately fast forward to him not being able to get a job in the depression and uh his parents had a cabin upstate new york somewhere so in the end he just figured you know what i'm not going to get a gig anyway because of the time you know because of the depression and everything so i'm just going to read he, he was truly probably an academic before he even knew he was and he read for four years uh about every world religion uh arthurian legends You know, folklore is like he just dived into everything he could. And he began to track that this hero's journey uh, was in every story from Muhammad to Buddha to the fairy tales. Uh, And he decided to map and map this. And he calls it the monomyth or uh, the hero's journey. And so uh, what wound up happening for me is in, I guess I was in my early 20s. Uh, PBS did a special, a six part special with Joseph Campbell being interviewed by Bill Moyers. And it is about, yeah, it's six hours long where he is talking about this uh, mythology in general and specifically to the hero's journey. And my sister and I both watched it and were completely mesmerized to the point where we bought cassette tapes. Of these six hour conversations and listen to them in our bedroom, you know, late at night, over and over and over again. So, it undoubtedly, you know, at that time, I was so impacted by that. I was raised in a Christian household. You know, my mother was Roman Catholic, but very liberal. uh, And we were lucky and fortunate to kind of have imagery in our lives or a semblance of a God that loved us uh, one that was gentle. There, there's a JG hook painting of, uh, Jesus, you know, and my friends call him rock star Jesus. Cause he looked like, you know, a rock star with the long hair, really handsome. So that was the, you know, the, the kind of, uh, symbolism I had growing up. So I was never taught to fear God. Uh, unlike my mother who was, you know, she was in confession every week or day at eight years old in her Catholic church. So I think because she had grown up in such a frightening, Uh, kind of dynamic with her relationship to God. She was very careful that my sister and I didn't get that uh, terrifying aspect. And uh, so when we saw this, there was no resistance from my mom. My mom, I think, because she was liberal-minded and open in her beliefs, she was never dogmatic or fundamentalist, uh, she too embraced everything we heard in this. So we were able to go down the path of at least for me, investigating what it was he was saying, and as I continued to get older, my own interests beyond Christianity really began to form. Uh, I was fortunate enough to study at a synagogue uh, and do some work for a rabbi who uh, honored the, Shab- the shabbat and needed somebody to take care, like a goyim, to take care of the lights, help his wife get dishes from the uh, you know Sabbath dishes that were a different place in the house. So I was being exposed at an early age to different religions. And I was fortunate to have the the stories of these religions exposed to me. Um, So what wound up happening was, I think as I got older, I began to realize this hero's journey is, he, he was already speaking about this in The Power of Myth with Bill Moyers, that we each are our own hero. And how do we how do we take the challenges that come our way and see those as the birth process of us becoming heroic? Uh, and I think, too, the other thing that I found fascinating was that every popular movie, every popular book, all followed this path as well. So from Star Wars to uh, the, the Matrix to Harry Potter, you're going to see the same uh, pattern and For those who are watching the podcast, we're going to put up a picture now of what that hero's path looks like. And for those listening, you know, you can either email me for a copy of the hero's path, uh, or just check out the video online on YouTube. So the Act One of there's two aspects of the hero's journey: the ordinary world, which is the top circle, and then the special world, which is at the bottom. Act one is a separation and departure, uh, and then act two, A, is the descent, and that basically means you have to, at some point, kind of leave the world that you know, and act uh, two, B, is the initiation of sorts, and then act three is the return with the wisdom uh, that you've gained on the journey, and I'll break, I'll break those down a little bit more in a minute, but what those represent is basically you needing to go through a path. And that's really what the the heart of Campbell's work is about, is helping, not everybody's going to interpret it the way I've interpreted it, but I have taken that to see, where am I on my own hero's journey? I, I do look at my life and I do look at the choices I make and sometimes even the day or the month and ask myself where on that hero's journey am I? And I found it to be an inspiring way to navigate the challenges because of the challenges any hero goes through at the start of a story instead of seeing those as uh, things that are holding me back or seeing myself as victimized by that situation or outcome. Instead, I can see it as an opportunity to stretch me and to grow me and to call me forth in a, in a much more powerful way. And that's how I have learned how to use this hero's journey for my own personal growth. And I find that a lot of my clients are able to do the same when they begin to understand what the hero's journey really is.
0: As I'm looking at this graphic, it's, it's it reminds me of, rites of passage so there, there was a, uh, an anthropologist named arnold van Gennep, um, and, and probably around the same time as joseph campbell um i i would have to look into that but he did a very similar thing that you described earlier where he looked at many rites of passage all around the world and he came up with three distinct phases mm-hmm. and it's very similar here the, the first one is you know separation where, where somebody who's being initiated is separated from the group and then the second phase is they go through some kind of a liminal experience which would be crossing that line between the ordinary world into the special world it's yeah. that the liminal experience is like time out of time um, where you might have uh, the the music that you listen to is different than what normal music is the smells are different than what normal smells are the, the place looks different than you know what it normally looked like it's kind of an upside down, topsy turvy world in this liminal place. And then, the third act, you come out of it. You're is reintegration. You're reintroduced to the group, but now with a new identity. Yes. And, and that identity came to you as a result of your liminal experience there. So, so it, it looks like there's a lot of convergence. There's a lot of similarities between these different narrative points in a myth um, from this hero's journey model and rites of passage. And, and before I get off of rites of passage, that could be something like a graduation ceremony. It could be a marriage. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it, it, there, there are so many different, um, rites of passage where somebody goes in with one identity, they come out with a new identity. Now, now you're a married couple where before you were single, you know, now, now you're, a, a a valid member of society with a degree in your hand, because you've graduated, and you've gone through all the ceremony and pomp of that liminal experience. So, so we see these things all around us, even in the world today. Yes. And, and so I think, I think what you're saying is that this hero's journey, as far as talking about where we are in different points of our life, you can relate them to different narrative points in this story cycle. Yes. All <laughs> right
1: absolutely true that's exactly what i think uh this work can do for people and when you you know i think there's a sense of being more empowered when you begin to look at it from that perspective right in a way that's the ultimate goal of coaching is to allow for other perspectives on how you're navigating a situation and opening your eyes up to uh multiple perspectives And that's what I have found his work did for me. Uh, There's a great quote where he talks about the moon and, you know, mankind gets all caught up in which finger is pointing to the moon. You know, the only way to the moon representing God or the divine is through Christianity, is uh, through Buddhism, is uh, through being a Muslim, is through being a Jew, you know, name all the world's religions. And those are all, in a way, the finger pointing to the moon. But what he says is that we get caught up in which finger is pointing to the moon and forget about the moon. He said it's not about the finger pointing to the moon. It's about the moon. So don't get caught up in those, uh, which which finger is it? And um, I think for me, that was just, uh, it was paradigm shifting for me to be able to be more, in the headspace of my relationship to the divine, as opposed to it going through a specific uh, track that was maybe already created by other people. And uh, I was able to kind of define what that relationship looked like. I was able to be informed by all of these opinions, but I was able to then trust my own inner authority and create, some relationship with the divine that maybe nobody else had ever experienced. And that wasn't me being in darkness, which, you know, certain religions would say, but it meant that I was able to create, you know, from scratch with the divine myself. Uh, And that to me was a really empowered uh, experience to have that concept. And there's a conversation he talks about, he has a couple of books, uh, you know, many books out there, but he spoke of this, uh, becoming the authority of your own life. And he feels that that doesn't happen in that initiation stage. And he talks about how uh, he watched these two men be interviewed on television. One of them was in his like early 60s. And the other one was like 20 year old baseball player. And this 20 year old baseball player who had been kicked out of his house at 14, who lived on the streets, you know, and had to kind of fend for himself. He watched him get interviewed, and he noticed the young man's inner authority. He he was the authority of his life, the way he spoke, the way he addressed the questions of the reporter. And then, simultaneously, he saw this man who had been in academia his whole life uh, had had, even though he was so old, he didn't he he surrendered to the authority. He quoted. You know the academics, or he quoted this that, and the other thing it, he didn't have his own sense of autonomy, and he said, you know it, in a lot of ways he he felt this is one of our challenges here in Western culture is that there is no forcing of the authority to become the authority of your life, and in a way, that young man uh, even though maybe he had had a more challenging experience, he had to become the authority of his life and Yet this older man had still not become that because he'd always lived under an authority, even by his journey through academia. And I think that too taught me at an early age, what, what, what does that mean to become the authority? And undoubtedly that lesson stuck with me uh, through a couple of really challenging situations with those who are technically in authority. For example, um, uh, doctors. Uh, some challenging conversations I had with doctors uh, where I, in in my own internal, you know, knowing, felt that their opinion and direction was not correct for me, and even though I was aware of this phenomena that you know it's easy for us to surrender to authority, somebody who's smarter than us or more educated than us or whatever you want to call it, I didn't. And I stood in my own authority, even though I had a lot of friends discourage me from that standpoint, even though the doctors, of course, discouraged me from not listening to them, that they were the experts. Uh, but it turned out to be the best thing I ever did. And it was so frightening, even though I had this knowledge with me. And I thought, God, all the people that don't know about this, they would never even be able to handle this if they didn't have that uh if they didn't even know about this concept of being the authority of their life. So I I've seen so much of his work show up in my life, literally. So I'll pause there and see what, where, where you're at with what I'm saying.
0: Well, I'd like, I'd like to hear more about your life, Kim, as it relates to the, these four acts and the different stages within each act of the uh, hero journey. So your, your call of adventure, what, what was that for you? That's where it all starts, right? You start in the ordinary world, you have a call to adventure.
1: Yeah, it does. It does start all there, and it does start with uh, coaching. Uh, I definitely, be, pr- part of the challenge of hearing about Joseph Campbell in my early 20s was he talked about finding your bliss. And uh, I, because I was so aware of finding bliss, of understanding the concept of bliss. I really was looking, and 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 you know all the journeys that I was taking at the time, and the teachers I was working with, and the religions that I was studying. I was constantly looking for that bliss, and you know I stumbled into finance really because I needed to make money to help support my family. And uh, even though I was doing really well there, I knew down deep inside that was not my bliss. But, you know, I had turned over a lot of rocks unsuccessfully so far in finding it. And then I wound up hiring a coach. And when I had the conversation with this coach for the first time, I think I talked about this in another podcast we did, uh, she spoke about co-active coaching. She talked about the philosophy of how my experience with her would go. And I was, I literally remember where I was sitting at the table and it was like the heavens opened and the angels sang, and I felt I was struck with lightning. Mm. And I knew in that moment, this is it. This is the bliss. Coaching is the bliss. So, that call of the adventure, uh, it was a call I had been waiting for for probably, uh, I mean, gosh, I'm going to be 54, and that's 15 years ago. So, yeah, obviously, I was 40 years old when the call came. So, that was, you know, from 20 to 40, that was a 20 year kind of wandering through the wilderness, if you will, mm. in a lot of ways. Um, and then, you know, at, at in, in the, the hero's journey, there's a part where there's a test, where there's a crossing of the first threshold. And what came was three, I guess, three months after I started my own business. You know, I walked away from a hedge fund salary that was extraordinary. Uh, I was very well compensated. I was at the top of my game. Uh, so I was definitely valuable if you will because i had just worked in probably one of the top hedge funds in the world uh an impossible place to get into uh probably one of the hardest hedge funds in the world to get a job in so once you got in that was it you you could write your path anywhere you could go anywhere because if you got in there you clearly they did the due diligence
0: can, can um, i can i ask you a question there kim yeah. um, be, because um I, i'm wondering about this refusal of the call you know, like if 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 you said that that you were the successful hedge fund manager um and but you felt the call to coaching or you felt something were there times where you felt like that but you just refused it you refused that call to adventure because of the security that you had financially and with your job
1: uh, and let me just clarify not not a hedge hedge fund manager i worked for a hedge fund manager okay. Sorry. I say, yeah. that's okay i just want that distinction out there Uh, so that is actually where this story goes. Uh, there was this moment of hesitation, but I had, I had already jumped. I was so convinced this is what I was born to do that I, I did leave. And I, I remember going, you know, telling everybody that I would be leaving and what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to become a coach. I'm going to start a coaching firm. They said, how are you going to do that? I said, I have no idea, but this is what I'm born to do. And they were like, yeah, okay, good luck with that. Like, what is she crazy? What is she doing here? Um, no problem with that, but three months later, after leaving that position, I got a phone call from a headhunter, and that headhunter uh, gave me the test. The test was a, uh, gosh, this is 15 years ago, 250000 base salary position, probably two fifty k in bonus, chief of staff position for a man who had uh, flew privately all over the world. I would be his chief of staff. Uh, And I would be with him at the decision-making table, giving my input and advice and also managing his art collection. So I mean, pretty much ticked off every box of anything that would interest me. I happen to be a huge fan of art and art history. Uh, I wanted to have more say and more decision-making uh, autonomy. Uh, to fly privately, it's a really nice thing to do. Uh, it was, it, and the salary, you know, was just extraordinary. Never mind the opportunity for bonus. So that's what showed up three months in, and I was so absolutely devastated by that offer because I thought was I being irresponsible of myself, my financial well-being, if I didn't take that job? And uh, actually called one of my mentors, Father Tom Hartman, uh, who I dedicate my book to, actually, uh, because I just needed to talk that out loud with somebody. So I, I basically wrestled with that for a couple of weeks because I was, you know, unsure. And when I called him and told him what was happening, uh, and yet, you know, how my heart still felt this was what I was born to do to stay, to become a coach, and even though I just started, uh, you know, he he always gave such great advice, and then when I asked him, you know, there was just this long pause, and I was, I could feel myself wishing that he would say what I, that I should keep going, and, and that told me, too, that's what I really wanted to do. Um, and, then, and then he said to me, you know, Kim, there's very few opportunities in life where we get to do what we feel we're called to do. And he said, if you feel called to become a coach and be a coach, then I think that's the path you should take. And I just burst into tears and said, oh my God, that's what I hoped he would say. Yes, that's what I want to do. Even though I, part of me knows this might be crazy, uh, I have to do it. And and that was that. So it was, it was a pretty, you know, let me tell you, along the way, <laughs> there have been times when I'm like, was that a mistake? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I would really be in a good financial position now. Or would I? Maybe not. Maybe I would have been robbed blind four years later. Who knows? But the point is, it doesn't mean I never doubt it. But for the most part, I know this is what I was meant to do. And I'm glad I made the choice I made. Uh, so, yeah. I'll pause so-
0: do, do you see yourself as still being on that journey in the special world? Or have you come full circle where you're back in the ordinary world and you've returned with your elixir of life and your freedom to live? Or are you still along that journey? Where do you see yourself?
1: I, I see myself in both uh, at the same time. I, there are moments when I do feel I have had the cru- crucifixion, uh, you know, the death, the death of myself uh and there's times when i i think that's part of what i see about the hero's journey is that we can we can live the hero's journey in an hour the whole process or it hold or an entire day so i think i still have a long ways to go if i look at the grand scheme of my life but then i can also say you know i got another uh opportunity when i was being called to hawaii to live in hawaii here i am the wall street coach you know living in new york city and then after spending a year and a half here to write my book transforming wall street i you know I had to go back to new york i thought i have to, i'm a new yorker i'm born in brooklyn like that's where my business is based that's where i have to be and then hawaii kept calling to me kept calling to me and then eventually it was telling me it was home and i was like how could this ever be home? Like, it just didn't logically make any sense. But every single thing inside of my whole heart and soul and spirit said this was home. So that was another kind of test, another crossing a threshold to step out of Manhattan into this place. I've been here now full time, three years. And, uh, you know, that, that was not how I saw myself. I didn't see myself as a country girl. I'm, I'm in I'm on the big Island of Hawaii, which is the least, you know, the least populated. I think we have 200,000 people on the whole Island. The Island is so big. All the islands of Hawaii could fit on it. Uh, there's two roads. Uh, you know, this is a small town. Like if you do something, they call it the uh, coconut wireless, you know, Everybody knows everybody's business here. Uh, and, and here's a, coming from a city of 8 million. So this is a very different lifestyle. I'm in bed usually by 10 o'clock, the latest, sometimes 9 o'clock. I used to go to dinner in New York City at 9 o'clock at night. Uh, I'm up here at 5 o'clock in the morning so I can go paddle on the ocean in a six-man canoe, which is something that's, you know been the same for thousands of years with a wooden paddle. The way this lifestyle is, is not the way I ever saw myself. So in a way, I did have this kind of death, a death of the way I saw myself. And so the death isn't always a literal death. Sometimes it's a metaphoric death. Sometimes it's a death to a belief of yourself or a belief of how you're gonna be viewed. So I don't know if that answers your question succinctly, <laughs> certainly it doesn't, but it, I see myself still living the hero's journey and having lived many aspects of it in different departments. So I'll pause there and see.
0: Yeah, no, I, 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 think, I think that's kind of my first reaction when I see this is that in, in our lives, we, we live multiple journeys. You know, we, we go on multiple journeys. And, you know, what, what I, I guess part of my hesitation to really even talk about it too much from, from the start is that, you know, Joseph Campbell was looking at stories that were traditional stories that, that are culturally passed down from person to person through generations and generations. And the reason that there's, there's common elements in these stories across cultures is because humans are the same everywhere and have very similar kinds of experiences, similar yeah. kinds of challenges, similar kinds of rewards, similar kinds of joys. And, and those similarities form this outline that you could look at as an outline. Then you, you take that and you superimpose it over your life you're kind of stretching to make things fit the outline of this thing if you're taking it too seriously. If you yeah. using it as a metaphor to say, here's, here's how I'm going to focus my own self-reflection on what I've done with my life and where I'm going with my life. I think it's a really valuable tool. I, I think when it gets a little bit too, I think it can be taken too literally yeah. um, and, in, and in take- a lot of cases.
1: And taking it too literally is the biggest problem we have right now, which is part of why I advocate people expose themselves to Campbell's work because he talks about how you sort of cut your nose off despite your face when you take things literally and the metaphor uh, and the the meaning behind things, how much more empowering it is. Uh, And you know, to imagine, oh, at that moment when I felt the call to Hawaii, there was because I'm so immersed in this man's work and, and rely on it so much, I could, I could hear the call to come to Hawaii, this is your home. I mean, that was what I heard this night at a luau when I was listening to this uh, you know, beautiful singer, Lito Archangel, who's one of my favorite musicians here in Hawaii, singing a song called Elena. There were 10 little boys doing the hula. I couldn't find my friends, which was unusual. I was sitting at a little table by myself, eating my little plate dinner from our luau, at the Kauai High Canoe Club. And I heard, I, I just heard, started to cry with really no reason. And I thought I was having a breakdown. I just, just started bawling. And I was like, oh my God, am I having a breakdown? And then I heard this voice say, no, you're just, you've been homesick and you're, you're so happy you're home now. And in that moment, there was a part of me that knew this was a threshold. There was, there was about to be, I had to make a choice, either go back to New York or stay in Hawaii. And I was present to that threshold and even though I was afraid to cross it, there was a knowing that here I'm, I'm being given another opportunity to be the hero of my own story. What am I going to choose? And knowing that that threshold was what it was, I think helped me be informed at least in the choice, knowing that the choice was gonna have really big consequences one way or the other. Um, so yeah, and, and the amazing part of this is that, you know, so because of Campbell, and this finding the bliss search, and this ultimate choice uh, to go and become a coach, you know, I, I had the crossing of the threshold a year and a half after I started my coaching firm, because business wasn't, uh, it started out comfortable, but it didn't, it didn't stay that way a year and a half into the journey, thanks to the 08 crisis, so I started in 2006, and then uh, 2008 came along and you know, a year and a half, it was the summer of 08 when I really was worried about what I was gonna do financially because I could see business was dropping off. And uh, due to that crisis, I wound up coaching for free outside of Stock Exchange for one year on a bench with a sign and uh, ultimately got named the Wall Street coach by some reporters. If that heat hadn't happened, if I wasn't forced with the financial situation with that gun to my head, I doubt that I would have sat on a bench outside the stock exchange. But that's what I chose to do because I was so committed to doing this no matter what. Even if people laughed at me, even if people made fun of me, I didn't care because I just had to find a way to stay uh, doing this. And uh, and then, you know, fast forward to... Uh, After the OA crisis ended, Bernie Madoff's arrest, and a lot of people, the Occupy Wall Street movement, and there was just this overall demonization of capitalism and of Wall Street and of finance. And while I was angry, like everybody else was, over the fraud that had been perpetrated, certainly with the, you know, I was not happy about the banks being bailed out. Um, or by what had taken place, I still felt there was so much focus on what was wrong instead of what was right. And I'm a fan of something called appreciative inquiry, which takes an asset-based approach in organizations where you basically look at what works and you turn up the volume and what doesn't work kind of slips away. And so I thought somebody needs to do that for Wall Street. Why don't we find the men and women who have found success with integrity as true capitalists and let them speak you know about what could be different let's have them inform us around how we could transform wall street and uh you know it was it was an idea that nobody seemed to want to run with and then i realized at one point i was called to write that book and the moment it hit me was walking uh through union square in new york There was a sign in the Strand bookstore that said, If there's a book you want to read and it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it by Toni Morrison. Uh, And it just went through me like a knife. And I was like, Shit, I got to write this book. And that journey began. Now, I'm not that in that position with my company, like to be in a position to write this kind of a book. I mean, I don't know if anybody. Listening and including yourself, Glenn. Like writing a book takes time, energy, effort. It's a financial investment of one way or the other. And on the one hand, my company uh, needed to have all my focus. It, you know, I still was building it, and yet this call to write the book came. And I think I heard the call for a lot longer uh, than maybe I had admitted to myself. But then I finally answered the call and thought, okay, I'm going to do this. So I did do the interviews over the course of a year and a half. In the end, I did 90 interviews. Uh, There's only 74 featured in my book, but I did do 90. Uh, And then I came to a crossroads again. And I thought, well, I can't put this book together. You know, the interviews were sort of easy because I could, you know, just do a couple of hours with one guy a week or one woman a week. And then, you know, I didn't have to do anything else. But then when I had them all done, I was like, shit, I got to put these all together. That's going to take a lot of time, a lot of work. It's going to cost money, so on and so forth. So because I was still, you know, hustling for my business, trying to get work in for me and my coaches, I realized, wow, I'm going to need to change my lifestyle. I'm not going to be able to continue the way I've been continuing. So I put a fleece to the universe. And I said, you know what? If, universe, you want me to write this book, I have felt you called me to do it in the first place, then you better figure out a housing situation. And within, I think, three days, I got this unexpected email from a friend who lived in Hawaii asking me if I knew anybody who wanted to house it long-term. And that is what opened up Hawaii to me. And it was all in service to this book. And because of Campbell and because of the impact that I he had already had on me before the book began. Here, he he's buried in Oahu on a different island. I'm on the Big Island. He's in you know an hour flight away. So I made a special pilgrimage to his gravesite in uh, Oahu, and I he liked whiskey. I like whiskey. Um, he's he had a special bottle actually at Esalen, which is a transformational place in California. He had his own bottle there. He went there every birthday uh, before he died. So I went, you know, in Hawaii, the custom is to bring a lay uh, to honor someone and also to use a tea leaf, which is this beautiful green leaf. Uh, and so I wrapped the whiskey bottle in a tea leaf. I brought him a lay and brought my own small jigger of whiskey because I wanted to toast him. And I got to his grave and I sat down and I said, okay. I kind of blame this all on you, Campbell. Like, you're the reason I'm in Hawaii. You're the reason I became a coach. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm here. I'm going to write my book. I don't know how the hell I'm going to do this. So you better help me, dude. So I brought you some whiskey to encar- enroll you in this project. And I'm going to toast you now. And I, I thank you. And it, as soon as I took a shot of the whiskey, I put the stuff on his stone. That The heavens opened and the rain came down so hard and heavy and I had a convertible so I ran back to the convertible put the top up uh and in it like that it was over and then I learned a couple of uh days later from a, a kumu in Hawaii that that is usually heaven's way of telling you that your prayer has been answered so uh it was really one of those special moments and I still have the little whiskey bottle that i drank from when i went to his grave and i have a picture of his grave Wait, i can share that with the audience if they want to see it so i'll pause there
0: well i'm, I'm looking at the chart and um in act 2b initiation there's an ultimate boon i think in your case with the thunderclap it was an ultimate boom and i'm just going <laughs> oh like to leave it right there
1: <laughs> it was an ultimate boom it was so unbelievable that i was like are you kidding me it was so like something out of a movie you couldn't you couldn't have you couldn't have written a better script at that moment when that happened and uh and then to remember you know that he was born in new york and then died in hawaii and the end of the power of myth you'll see you know he filmed the entire interview at skywalker ranch because it was it was um uh, his name just went out of my head. Uh,
0: George Lucas.
1: George Lucas, who had read Joe Campbell's book, The Hero with a Thousand Vases. And when he read that book, he created Star Wars from it. So they became, you know, very good friends. The Star Wars theory, you know, series is all because of uh, George Lucas's influence. So, so when this interview was taking place, they, you know, they did it at Skywalker Ranch, the interview, except for the last episode, because at this point, Campbell... Um, he, you know, was back in Hawaii where he lives uh, with his wife Gina Erdman, uh, and uh, you can see the palm trees behind him in the last. And I, and I, you know, remember seeing that when I was a little girl, thinking, "Wow, can you imagine living in Hawaii?" And like here I am, now living in Hawaii. It's like the yeah. wildest thing. So I think I wanted to just say that that concept of that journey, like there's just there's just moment after moment has felt for me so many times like a heroic journey. Uh, and, you know, I think I've gotten guts here in the choices I've made because once you start making these choices, thinking your life, th- when you look at your life through this perspective or lens of you are a hero, then you can't help but take the heroic choice uh, because you know that it doesn't guarantee success. It could be, you know, like I said, bloody on a, on a, on a field somewhere in the middle of nowhere, but like, at least you've given it your all, you know, and it makes me think of, um, uh, what's his name? You know, Roosevelt's about the man in the arena. You know, it's not the people outside the arena that counts. It's the man in the arena who's making the choices around to live. And, uh, the, the other thing too, I think I'm going to speak to, because I feel this is also similar in, in the sense of a heroic journey. Uh, it's one of my favorite quotes from Carlos Castaneda, the teachings of Don Juan. Uh, and what he says, I'm going to read, now it's a couple of paragraphs. Anything is one of a million paths. Therefore you must always keep in mind that a path is only a path. And if you feel you should not follow it, you must not stay with it under any condition. To have such clarity, you must lead a disciplined life. Only then will you know that any path is only a path. And there is no affront to oneself or to others in dropping it if that is what your heart tells you to do. But your decision to keep on the path or to leave it must be free of fear or ambition. I warn you, look at every path closely and deliberately. Try it as many times as you think necessary. This question is one that only a very old man asks. Does this path have a heart? All paths are the same. They lead nowhere. There are paths going through the bush or into the bush. In my own life, I could say I have traversed long, long paths, but I am not anywhere. Does this path have a heart? If it does, the path is good. If it doesn't, it is of no use. Both paths lead nowhere, but one has a heart and the other doesn't. One makes for a joyful journey. As long as you follow it, you are one with it. The other will, cur- will make you curse your life. One makes you strong. The other weakens you. Before you embark on any path, ask the question, does this path have a heart? If the answer is no, you will know it. And then you must choose another path. The trouble is nobody asks the question. And when a man finally realizes that he has taken a path without the heart, the path is ready to kill him. At that point, very few men can stop to deliberate and leave the path. A path without a heart is never enjoyable. You have to work hard even to take it. On the other hand, a path with a heart is easy. It does not make you work at liking it. I love that quote. I think it's a hard quote to live sometimes. uh, And I think it's, also an advocacy of being that hero of your own journey
0: so so kim what we've been talking about here we've been talking about embracing your hero's journey or embracing your inner hero and this is practice number four of your five practices and we've talked about the first three we've talked about self-responsibility we've talked about empathy for yourself and others We've talked about emotional non-resistance or emotional connection. Mm-hmm. Now this is the fourth one, embracing your inner hero. Can you help me understand how does this fit with those other three and are the other three like a progression? It, it, like why did you put this one as number four and structured? So maybe yeah. you can do that a little bit.
1: That's great. It's a great question. Uh, and, and uh, understandable question. Uh, I think, feel that the practices really are the steps towards five, which is mindfulness, which is being with what's so. And so for us to go there, I do feel there sort of are steps one has to take to get to the next step. While these each simultaneously, individually can be practiced. I do find that the practice that I start with, which is self responsibility, lends itself to being able to do all the other steps. If you are willing to take 100% responsibility for how you respond to what shows up in your life, you're able to then step much more powerfully into a place where you might then be able to practice self and other empathy. And then when you begin to step into a place of self and other empathy, you begin to have the wherewithal to be able to surf through hard to be with emotions in a way that is uh, as fast as the slowest part of you can go, as Raphael Kushner likes to say. And that too is in service to then you being able to Ride the wave of a hero because a hero's path is going to have dragons. You know, you're going to come up against some of your biggest fears. And I believe that the practices prior to this facilitate the nourishment and the strength and are sort of the tools you'd put on your belt if you saw yourself as a hero going through life. And even the heroic path and embracing you and the inner hero within you. Ultimately, what is that in service to being in a place of mindfulness, being in a place of comfort with what is right now, this moment, without needing to fix it or change it or make it better. And so I feel like there are pearls on a necklace that each are strung one at a time and come together in the whole in my experience are, are spoken about in even the sacred wisdom practices um and my my own journey with being exposed to multiple religions and studying mythology you know as a lay person through campbell and you know through my own work uh even with shamanism uh that i've you know done so does that answer your question
0: yeah yeah
1: cool cool
0: so, so what's, the, what's, the, what's the takeaway that you want to give to the listener? What do you want them to walk away from this podcast, this episode, feeling?
1: I want you to walk away, any listener listening to this, with the concept that if they did view themselves as the hero of their own story, as the hero of their own life, how does change? How does their relationship to their life Their relationship to their family of origin how does the relationship to their siblings to their ex-wives or ex-husbands uh get transformed in in a lot of what campbell talks about with a heroic journey is you have the tests and if you think back to even luke skywalker you know he is tested in the swamp with yoda yoda is pushing him beyond his comfort zone way beyond his comfort zone and all of this is in service to him being able to be in that place of neutrality when he is going to be up against the biggest battle of his life so ask yourself if i am the hero of my own life what what is all that i've been through what has that done for me? How has that molded me? How has that strengthened me? How has that brought me to see myself in a place that I could never have imagined? My book, even writing my book was a heroic journey because I was absolutely paralyzed with fear to write my book in the end. It was, I was stopped in so many ways and I found the teacher in the nick of time, which is just the most incredible miracle that helped me get past my fear but you have a book in you, whoever's listening. You have a movie in you. You have a a divorce that you just haven't given yourself permission to have, or a person you want to marry that you haven't given yourself permission to have, or you're waiting for somebody to agree with you, or an authority figure, or a parent, or, or a kid. And I ask you, what if you let yourself become unencumbered by what other people think of you, and you listen to your own heart. What changes? What opens up for you if you did that? That's what I would, what I hope the listener will walk away with, a, a new paradigm, of perspective.
0: That sounds like a heroic way to live, Kim. <laughs> please, please, no spit takes.
1: <laughs> you almost, you almost made me spit out my water. <laughs> It sounds, it sounds like you're being a little facetious, Claude.
0: No, I'm not being facetious. No, I, I, okay. I'm not being facetious. I'm playfully tying back what you said to the theme of the...
1: Okay, good. In other words, we're not separate from
0: the characters we see in our movies and in our novels. They are us, it's one journey. If
1: you do like the movie, Finding Joe the Movie, so Finding Joe is the name of the movie, but to get it online, it's findingjoethemovie.com. You can rent it or buy it, However, that's a nice appetizer. But if you really want to dig in deep, please highly recommend you listen to or watch The Power of Myths six-part series. It's on uh, Amazon Prime. You can buy each episode or you can buy the whole collection. Uh, You will never hear a better storyteller, in my opinion, than Joe Campbell. And it is a riveting uh, six hours. I can't tell you how many times I've watched it. I'm never bored by it. I always learn something new. Uh, It is, in a lot of ways, my church, uh, that series, and uh, enriches me to this day. So I hope it serves you all.
0: This has been the Wall Street Coach Podcast with Kim and Curtin. Find her on the web at thewallstreetcoach.com and sign up for her newsletter, get a copy of her book, or schedule a time to chat with Kim yourself. And if you like this podcast, please give it a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. Thank you for listening. This podcast has been produced by Ear Candy Productions.